Welcome to the preaching and teaching ministry of Mary and Oaks Assembly of God in Ocala, Florida. We invite you to open your Bible as we join Pastor Tim McIntyre for today's message for Bible study. Tonight we continue our Bible study series on the life of Peter with the subtitle of From Fisherman to Follower of Jesus. So we've been looking at the life of Peter from the time that Jesus uh, first met him. He was introduced to Jesus by his brother Andrew, to his call to be a disciple, um, his traveling around with Jesus. He kind of became an unofficial. I only say that because it's never said in Scripture that he was the leader of the 12 disciples, but it's quite obvious from the things that he says and does in his position, that he's kind of their leader. He's their spokesperson. Sometimes he does it right, says some really great things. A couple weeks ago, we looked at how he was inspired by God to give that profession that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then sometimes he said it wrong, like last week when he said, No, Jesus, (laughs) that's not right. You don't know what you're talking about. That isn't his exact words, but that's basically what he was talking about. So tonight we're going to pick it up. Um, in John chapter 13, the title of our lesson is an example to follow. Now, I will give a little disclaimer here. We did look at this passage in the last year when we were studying the, um, the teachings of Jesus from the upper room, all right? Actually began that series. We're going to be looking at it from a little bit different perspective tonight, but there'll be a little bit of overlap. But if you're like me, you probably don't remember most of the things we talked about back then. Anyway, so it'll be a good reminder But again, tonight the title is an example to follow. To kind of introduce the topic, you know, there are many ways to communicate truth, okay? The most obvious is you speak it, right? You tell the truth. You tell the truth. When we're talking about the gospel, we're talking about biblical truth. It can be through teaching or preaching or discussion, but you're telling the truth. But there are a lot of other ways to communicate truth. All right, as well as lies, but we're talking about truth tonight. You can tell the truth or communicate the truth by telling stories. All right? Jesus was good at that, wasn't he? He told parables. People loved his stories. All right? Not only that, but drama is great at communicating truth and not only communicating truth, but to help you feel a certain way toward it. How many times have you watched a really good movie and all of a sudden you're just brought to tears or you just get so excited like, yay, the underdog won, you know? And that's one of the things that I think has been so exciting about some of the great Christian movies that have come out over the last decade or so is that there's a lot better quality than what Christian movies had years ago because they didn't have any money, you know? Um, but the writing and everything, and, and the truth is being presented in a way that it's not just this is the truth, but it stirs our hearts. And so you've got drama. You've got example. One of the greatest ways to communicate truth and for it to really take hold is to live it out. Okay? You know, this is especially good if we're trying to share the gospel with people or we're trying to train people or encourage people in their own walks with the Lord if they not only hear the truth coming out of our mouths, but they see it in our lives. Because as you well know, uh, that if you say one thing and do something else, people are going to pay more attention to what you're doing than what you're saying. The idea basically being if you say you believe something, but you don't live it, you don't really believe it. You know, either that doesn't make that big of a deal to you. Well, Jesus used all of these methods. And what we're going to look at tonight 
and we, we are looking at the life of, G, uh, of Peter, but Peter has a, 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 a starring role, put it this way. If we look at this as a drama, okay, um, it's something that is acted out. Peter has a starring role. Jesus is the star, um, but Peter would be the supporting actor, okay? So Peter's the supporting actor in this drama, and um, uh, this is a story that's familiar to many people. It very probably is to you. If it's not, you get to listen to a, uh, a really good story from the life of Jesus. But the setting of this story is that this event takes place at the end of Jesus' life. All right? He's about 33 or so years old. He has been traveling with his disciples for about three, three and a half years. He is in Jerusalem and it's come to the place where he's going to be betrayed and he's going to go to the cross. So within 24 hours of this event, he's going to be severely beaten and mocked, cruelly nailed to a cross, suffer intense, torturous pain and die. And he knew it ahead of time. And he knew what his disciples were going to do. He knew Judas was going to be the one that would betray him. And he knew that Peter would deny him. But you know what? He still loved them. Not only that, but the disciples have been having their favorite argument. Their favorite argument is Jesus is the Messiah. He's going to set up God's kingdom. Who's going to be the most important? I'm the most important. Okay. And we know that from Luke 22, 24 to 30. I forgot to put that on your note sheet. That is a description of what's going on in the upper room from Luke's gospel. And he says very specifically that this argument that they'd had a number of times throughout their ministry with Jesus. You know, well, Jesus is going to set up God's kingdom. Who's going to be the one to be the right-hand man, the left-hand man? Who's going to have the most power, most authority? I think I should be the one. And Jesus told him over and over and over again, that's not the way it's going to be. That very night, they had been arguing about it. And Jesus loved them anyway. In fact, his whole focus this whole evening is on his disciples and his love for them and his concern to prepare them for what's getting ready to happen and then beyond that, to them living life and doing his work after he's gone. And that's what we talked about last year when we had that Bible study series, Lessons from the Upper Room. Now, if you weren't here and that intrigues you, you can go back and listen to it online. Um, All those lessons are there. In the midst of all this, they're having a meal The disciples have been arguing about who's the most important. Jesus lowers himself to do a job that they should have done, a job that usually the lowest servant would do. That's why none of the disciples have done it. They didn't want to lower themselves to do it, and that is to wash their feet. So let's take a look at that. John chapter 13. Let's just read it all the way through, verses 1 to 17. That's the background, okay? Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, arose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments, and taking a towel, he tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter. Here's the supporting role here. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what I'm doing, you don't understand now, but afterward, you will understand. Let me just say here, that is a great principle. There are so many times God is doing stuff in our life that we don't understand right now. But he promises that one day we will. We just got to trust him. Anyway, verse 8. 
Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me, no part with me. You have nothing to do with me. Simon Peter, the enthusiastic Simon Peter is going to be enthusiastic no matter which way he goes. He says, Simon Peter said to him, well, Lord, not only my feet only, but also my hands and my head. In other words, Lord, drench me. You know, just wash me all over, okay? Give me a bath. Jesus said to him, the one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. And when he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should also do just as I have done for you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. So that's the passage. That's the story. And we've already looked at the setting. And um, there's so much rich stuff that's in this story. But we're going to look at it from three different perspectives tonight. Okay? The events in this story are three different things. Um, the first one is that the events of this story are an allegory of Jesus' purpose. This is a trivia question, but can somebody tell me what an allegory is? Anybody know? I bet a lot of you have heard the word before and kind of know what it is, but to put it into words. A story that's not straightforward, and to expand upon that, a story that has a, an additional meaning to it. It's a story that is told to communicate truths that are not obvious, but they're there. Okay? Some of Jesus' parables are allegories. You know, the parable of the Good Samaritan, um, you know, the parable, a number of the parables are allegories. So they're stories that are told, but they have an additional meaning. The events of, of this story, the ones that we've just read, the background that is there is an allegory of Jesus's purpose, his purpose for coming to earth, his purpose for going to the cross. If you want to, you can turn with me to Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 to 11. This is some, it's not hard to understand, but it's some theological teaching by Paul. And he talks about what Jesus did. Not just when he was on here on earth, but as he was in heaven and he and the Father and the Holy Spirit decided together that he would come to earth, why he came to earth, and what he went through doing so, okay? But in Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 3, um, Paul's making this very practical. He says, you need to be just like Jesus because this is what Jesus did. So starting in verse 3 of Philippians 2, it says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped or held on to. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. 
So how is this story from John an allegory of Jesus' purpose? A lot of it's found here in Philippians. In verse 4 of John 13, it says he rose from supper. That's kind of an allegory for the fact that he got up from his throne in glory. It says in that same verse that he laid aside his outer garments. We see that when he got up from his throne in glory, he laid aside his glory. Paul in Philippians said that he emptied himself, and theologians have debated ever since Paul wrote it exactly what that means. But the point is he set aside all of his privileges and prerogatives as deity to become not only God but man also and to come to earth. So he laid aside his outer garments. He emptied himself. Verse 4 ends by saying he took a towel tied it around his waist. Philippians says that he took the form of a servant. That's exactly what he did that night. He became a man. Verse 5 of John 13 says he poured water into a basin. I see there him pouring out his own blood in his death on the cross to be the provision for cleansing of every sin. Verse 5, it also says he began to wash his disciples' feet. Well, for those who respond to his drawing, he applies the cleansing of his own blood to their lives. Then in verse 12, after the foot washing is over, it says, when he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, I see that as his resurrection and ascension into heaven back to the right hand of God. In fact, Hebrews 1.3, I meant to put that on your note sheet. I don't think it made it, so you might want to write that there, Hebrews 1.3. The writer of Hebrews says that after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So Jesus got up from where he was, took off his outer garments, wrapped himself in a towel, acted as a servant, washing his disciples' feet, then resumed his place, which is a great picture of what he did in eternity, that he left his throne above, came down and lowered himself to become a human in a role of a servant, and his blood was shed to pay the price for our sins. And then he died and rose again and went back to the right hand of God. So that's a great allegory. I didn't mean for that to be a long thing tonight, but I just wanted to point that out, that this passage is a great allegory of Jesus' purpose. The second thing we see about the events of this story is that it's a picture of spiritual cleansing. It's a picture of spiritual cleansing. Now, why do they need their feet washed? Why do the disciples need their feet washed? They were dirty. There you go. See, it's not that hard. Um, you know, we know what it's like to have dirty feet, whatever, but it was worse in their situation. You know, they wore sandals, flat piece of leather or something that was tied with strips of leather around their ankles to their feet. And, of course, they did not have pavement like we do. Even if they did, it'd still get dirty, but they had dirt. And many times their vehicles would leave exhaust in the streets. Pay attention. Their vehicles, donkeys and would leave their exhaust in the streets, you know, and there might be human waste in the streets. And, I mean, if it rained, it would get muddy. I mean, it was dirty, and they would travel from place to place, and, and their feet would get really dirty. And so it was just a normal thing that if you traveled, you got to where you were going, you'd wash your feet. Either you'd wash them yourself if you were visiting someone who was rich and had a servant, they could make wash your feet. But there would always be a basin and a towel provided so you could wash your feet. But it's obvious from the story that none of the disciples washed their own feet. Why didn't they wash their own feet? Probably because they're afraid if they got started on their own, they'd have to start doing somebody else's. But nobody did. And so Jesus uses a teaching opportunity. Okay? But it's interesting as Jesus begins to wash his disciples' feet. And please note that Judas is still with them during this. Jesus washed Judas' feet. 
even though he knew that he was going to be the one to betray him. I heard a preacher one time preaching on this. He says, you know, if I'd have been Jesus, I'd have been tempted to wash Judas's feet with a, with a steel brush. <laughs> but anyway, but we're talking about Peter's life. And so he gets to Peter, and Peter says, Jesus, you going to wash my feet? Jesus says, yeah. He says, no, Lord, you, you can't wash my feet. He refused Jesus' attempt to wash his feet. Why did Peter, why do you think, I mean, it doesn't say why, but why do you think Peter did not want Jesus washing his feet? I mean, you might help if you put yourself in a situation. Vita. Okay. So because he knew that Jesus was so far above him that he was God, that he was the Messiah, he was the Son of God, okay, and so he did not, now why, okay, that, that, that's a good answer, and that certainly is the truth. But why would he, as Peter, being a man, not want Jesus, even as God, to wash his feet? I mean, what is it that's in him that says, no, you're God, you're Messiah, you shouldn't wash my feet? He didn't think he was worthy. Okay? Um, honor. You know, he, did, he would feel it was dishonoring, perhaps, for Jesus to wash his feet. Okay, he's not worthy. Somebody said pride. Yeah, it could be that too. I mean, that's just the opposite of no, no you're not going to wash my feet, you know. Can you think of any other reasons why he might have felt that way? Those are the main reasons I can think of. I think it's the same thing. I think it's just that he just doesn't feel worthy. You know, he's kind of subdued. He, I don't deserve this. Jesus, there's, there's no way. You shouldn't be washing my feet. You shouldn't be washing anybody's feet. All right? So he refused for the time being. Obviously, he turned and changed his mind. We're going to talk about that in a minute. Um, but let me ask you this. Do we ever refuse Jesus' ministry to us? Yeah. I mean, think about that. Say, so, no, no, I would never refuse Jesus. But if you really think about it, is there ever times that God wants to help us, that Jesus wants to help us, but we kind of hold him at arm's length? Yeah. Why? Can you think of any examples, or why do we do that? We don't feel like we're worthy. Okay. Lack of understanding. Why else do we might hold God or hold Jesus at arm's length when he wants to help us? It's too much. He's already blessed us, so, you know, so we're not worthy. He's already done so much. And it could be pride too, couldn't it? I can do this on my own, you know? I can do this on my own. Some of the same reasons, you know, because we look at Peter and, and sometimes we wonder, why did he say and do what he did? He did because he was human, you know? And I think that we would probably do a lot of the same things he did if we were in his sandals. <laughs> that was his shoes. Okay. All right. So, anyway. Um, you know, people are really good about wanting to do things on their own. So, Jesus said, if I do not wash you, you have no share in me. And so then Peter says, well, if that's the case, Lord, not just my feet, but my head, my hands, everything. Now, why did he respond that way? It's like, Jesus, I want everything you got for me. If, if I have to have it done, then just give it all to me. All right? That's the good, th that's the thing I like about Peter. He was enthusiastic. He was all in, right? I mean, sometimes he was all in in the wrong way, but he had a good heart. Even when he got it wrong, a lot of times it was for the right reasons. You know, for him to, to, to say, Jesus, no, don't wash my feet, I think it was for the right reasons because I'm not worthy. You know, it's not arrogant. I don't think it was arrogance to be honest with you. That's just my opinion. I don't think it's pride. I think it's, I'm not worthy. Okay. Um, 
So anyway, but then Jesus said, Peter, you don't need a bath. You just need your feet washed. All right? And then he says this little statement, the one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but in every one of you. So what is Jesus talking about? Obviously, there's a double meaning here. Okay? I mean, it is true the disciples had probably already bathed because they were having this banquet. This is a Jewish festival. This is the Passover. Okay? I mean, they would have done so anyway, probably for a regular meal. They're going to have a great meal together, so they do like we would do. Take a shower, take a bath, whatever, get their nice clothes on, and then they go to the meal. And so traveling through the streets, their feet get dirty, but the rest of them don't. And so Jesus says, you don't need a bath, Peter. You just need your feet washed. But it's obvious there's a double meaning here. What do you think Jesus is trying to communicate with the double meaning behind what he's saying? Tim. Okay, so what, how does that relate to what he said here about you don't need a bath, you just need your feet washed? I think you're on the right track, but how does that relate to him saying you don't need a bath, you've already had a bath, you just need your feet washed? Okay, so he already had a relationship with Jesus, okay? So if the bath means that he already has a relationship with Jesus, what would the feet washing represent then? You're on the right track. You're on the right track. Mm-hmm. Okay, so even though Peter already had a relationship with Jesus, he still got things messed up. And he's getting ready to get things messed up. Yeah, any other thoughts? about what Jesus was talking about when he says, you've already had a bath, but you're doing your feet washed, but there's a double meaning here. All of you are clean except for... Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, so when he said, all of you are clean except for one, he's talking about Judas, so does that mean that Judas did not take his shower before dinner? No, it's that double meaning, right? Judas is not in right relationship with Jesus. Judas does not have the pure heart. You mentioned the word pure. Exactly. You see, Tim, you were on the right track. I was just trying to get you to take one extra step, okay? The disciples were in right relationship with Jesus. They'd already had their bath, okay, dealing with their old life, dealing with their sins. You know, that was on the other side of the cross, so it's not as clear, but on this side of the cross, that's salvation. That's when we repent of our sins, and we're right with God, okay? We've we've had that bath, all right? Um, So... Let me just throw this out there because this is the next thing on your note sheet, letter A. We need the bath of salvation, okay? This side of the cross, that's what sim- that's symbolic of. It's salvation. In fact, Titus 3, 5 on your note sheet, Paul says this, Jesus saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. I love that picture, the washing. And, and that's part of what symbolize, uh, baptism symbolizes, is that our sins have been washed away. We've had that spiritual bath, okay? So we need that spiritual bath. We need salvation. That's true today. But the disciples had already experienced the equivalent of that on the other side of the cross. Did you want to add something to it, Lynn? You had your hand up a little bit ago. That's right. And that brings us to the second half. Great segue, Lynn. I didn't even prompt you. Okay. Letter B on your note sheet. Letter A is we need the bath of salvation, but letter B is we need ongoing cleansing. He used the word daily. That's true, too. But we need ongoing cleansing. Cleansing. When we have repented of our sins, turned to Jesus, 
confessed and professed our faith in him, that he's the one that saved us because of what happened on the cross, we're not trusting in ourselves, then we're saved. Okay? We have eternal life. Like we sang earlier tonight, we can know that we're going to heaven. We don't have to say, well, as long as I, you know, do better than I did before and my good outweighs my bad and when I get there, I'll see if it all... No, we can know because we're not trusting in ourselves. We're trusting in Jesus. All right? His death purchased our salvation. So we are saved. But we still got to deal with the sin that comes up in our life. Except for any of you who have not sinned since you were saved. How many of you have not sinned ever since you've been saved? Okay, I'll put my hand down because I'm not one either. All right? We still deal with temptation. You know, I've always said, theologically speaking, if we could fully take advantage of what God makes available to us, it would be possible that we could never sin after being saved. But I don't know a single person that ever did that because we all are still human, okay? But we need that ongoing cleansing, and that's why we stand on that promise. One of my favorite promises is 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins... He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Yes, Vita. That's right. The one who's bathed does not need to be washed. That's the assurance of the salvation we have. Yeah. You know, I can remember when I first became a Christian. I was only 10 years old. And I I, I had a clear understanding of the gospel because my mother had explained it well to me and I'd responded to it. I knew I was a sinner, needed a Savior. I asked Jesus to be my Savior and stuff. But you know what? I got saved all over again every night. I say that kind of, not flippantly, but I mean every night. I would lay in bed getting ready to go to sleep, and I had not had, I was only 10 years old, and I was a new Christian. I didn't know that much about the Bible, and I did not realize the assurance I had of my salvation. And I was afraid that maybe I had done or said something during the day that maybe displeased God. And if I went to sleep without confessing it and getting it right, if he came in the middle of the night, I wouldn't go. You know, I'm serious. That's the way I felt. And so every night, you know, I would sincerely say, God, it's the end of the day, get ready to go to sleep. Um, and I would search my mind. Is there anything I did or said wrong or whatever? And if it was, I confess it if I hadn't already done so, because I try to do that just throughout the day. But Lord, if there's anything in my life that I haven't, would you just forgive me of my sins? I want to be right with you when I go to sleep tonight, you know, which in general is not a bad thing to do. Examine your life at the end of the day. Make sure you're cool. You know, make sure there's nothing you've overlooked or done something wrong, said something wrong you haven't dealt with. But we have the assurance of salvation, but we do need that ongoing cleansing. So I was really glad that when I finally got that assurance of salvation, I didn't have that concern, that overwhelming concern. I still wanted to be right with God, make sure I dealt with any sin in my life. But, um, but uh, yeah, I can remember that. Now, let me ask you a question before we go on. How often do we need this ongoing cleansing? Every day. Well, to use the same picture, whenever you get dirty. Okay, so using the picture, if the dirt is sin, whenever you get dirty, you need cleansing. Um, I'm a little bit, I'm not as bad as I used to be, but I, I, I can't stand to have my hands dirty. Probably because I work a lot with paper and computers and things like that. You get your hands dirty, it makes a mess, right? So anytime I get something on my hand, you know, if I'm eating something that gets a little sticky, I got to go to the bathroom and wash it, all right? Um, get a little dirt on it or whatever, I'm doing a job and it's dirty, I can go wash it, Um I am a little bit bad sometimes, though, because I'll be helping my wife in the kitchen. I'll be peeling potatoes. My hands get a little potato. I rinse them under the sink. Then I go peel another potato. They get the same thing. I keep rinsing my hands to get that stuff off. So I guess I am kind of bad. But anyway, <laughs> it's a good illustration, though. Anytime we know that there's something in our life that shouldn't be there, we get dirty, okay? Thought, word, attitude, action. It's not pleasing to God. Deal with it right away. Bert.
Yes, David prayed for secret sins. Yeah, Lord, forgive me. Let's go on to the third thing about the events of um, this evening that have been shared in the story. The events of this story are um, an allegory of Jesus' purpose, a picture of spiritual cleansing. But the main one we will look at, which doesn't mean we have to take a lot of extra time with it, but an example of humble service. And this is where we get the title from, an example to follow. Okay, we need to apply the second one, make sure that we're saved, and we're dealing with a sin in our lives as it comes up. But this third one is an ongoing applying thing. It's an example of humble service. All right? Jesus came, as we said in the first point, he left heaven, became a man, became a servant, served. Okay? And, um, in fact, Jesus said in another place, I should have put on the notes, she didn't even look it up. He said, I'd come to be served, I came to serve. You know? And it's obvious that he's trying to teach his disciples they need to do the same thing. It's obvious because he said so. Okay, right there in the passage, John 13, 14, chapter 13, verses 14 and 15, he says, If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I've given you an example that you also should do as I have done to you. An example of humble service. So, what does that mean? Does that mean that from that point on, whenever the disciples were traveling, going from place to place, when they got where they were, one of them should volunteer to wash everybody else's feet, and maybe they should keep records so they could rotate it around and nobody get overused? Is that what Jesus is saying? That now the disciples should always be ready and willing to wash each other's feet? No. It's interesting. There are some religious organizations, denominations, or whatever that do take that very literally that that means that we should wash each other's feet. It, to them, it's a sacrament, okay, an ordinance, not a sacrament, an ordinance. You know, We have the ordinance of communion. We have the ordinance of baptism. Those are the two ordinances we believe in. And some people have a third ordinance, and that is um, washing each other's feet. Why do they do that? Because it's something Jesus said to do. We baptize because Jesus said we should be baptized. We take communion because Jesus said you should take communion. And they say, well, we should be washing each other's feet because Jesus said we should wash each other's feet. So if Jesus didn't mean that they should literally wash each other's feet all the time, what was he saying? We should care for each other? Is that what you said, care? We should care. You said care originally, but then we should serve one another. Yeah. And, you know, the picture, as we said, Jesus is doing something that you could only ask the lowest slave to do. He says we should be willing to do whatever needs to be done to serve one another, to minister to one another, even if it's something that other people would really look down on. Tim? Yeah, you know, I I agree with you. It's kind of a prelude. It's kind of a direction on how we go about doing what Jesus is going to tell them to go. Go make disciples. You put it together. It's like, go and make disciples in whatever it costs. I mean, it ties together with all of his teachings, right? If you want to follow me, you need to deny yourself, which means you're not the most important person. And that goes back to what Paul said, right? He says, have the same attitude that Jesus did. He wasn't just looking out for himself. Don't you be just looking out for yourself either. Look out for what's best for others and be willing to sacrifice and be willing to do things nobody else is willing to do. Be willing to lower yourself. Be willing to look down upon. Be willing to mock. Be willing to be shamed. Be willing to be persecuted. Okay? Lynn. That's a good question. Those that would look at the literal foot washing as an ordinance that we should do would say, you know, Jesus literally meant that you should be baptized. Jesus literally meant that you should take communion. So why don't we just say Jesus literally meant that we should wash each other's feet? Good question. Some people look at it that way. 
But many people, most people look at it that that was not the specific intent Jesus had. When it comes to baptism, that was the specific intent he had. When it comes to communion, that was the specific intent he had. But in this case, the specific intent was to be a servant and to serve. So when we get to heaven, we'll find out for sure. (laughs) But that being said, even though we don't look at it as an ordinance, I've been part of foot washing services, ceremonies. Have you been part of a foot washing ceremony? They can be very, very meaningful. They can also be very humbling. We're going to come back to that, okay? Yeah, yeah. I know that the the Seventh-day Adventists do that every time they take communion. The Church of God, yes, it's a, it's a, it's a, um, it's an ordinance, okay? Yeah, Chris. Yeah. All right. Um, okay, so um, what does this mean for us? On your note sheet here, under it's an example of humble service, letter A, we should humbly minister to others. We should humbly, it takes humility. Jesus had to humble himself, which he didn't seem to have a problem with. Of course, he's God. He doesn't have the issues that we do. But to really minister this way, to really serve others, we have to humble ourselves. We have to be willing to do things that we normally would not want to do. Okay, I've got two bullet points on your note sheet. The first one is in ministry settings. You know, I firmly believe that God has ministry for every single one of his followers. Okay? And it's our responsibility, with the help of others, other leaderships, other, other lead, whatever, to find out what those ministries are. And it can be, we've talked about this before, you know, he also gives gifts from the Holy Spirit. We've done that study before. And some of it is ministry and gifts that are used in the public, like preaching and teaching and, and things that are obvious. But some of it's just behind the scenes things. Okay, And so we need to find our place of ministry, and we need to humbly serve there. And can I tell you, it doesn't matter what area of ministry you serve in, there's going to be things you love about it and things you don't like about it. That's true as being a pastor. There's things I love about being a pastor. There's other things that's like, okay, well, that's part of the responsibility. I'm going to do it. I don't love it, but I'm going to do it, you know. And um, it's not on your note sheet here, but something Jesus demonstrated here is servant leadership. Okay, I'm a big believer in servant leadership because that's what Jesus is teaching by this that any leader should be willing to do whatever's necessary. doesn't mean they have to. I mean, every leader can't do everything and still do what God's called them to do. But they should be willing to do whatever needs to be done if they're called upon to do that. And um, so we need to be, we should humbly minister to others in ministry settings, okay? And, uh, you know, sometimes people use excuses not to do that. Well, I don't have the time. I can't really make a difference, whatever. But no matter what excuses we use, we're, we're not just refuting something somebody's asking. We're refuting what God's called us to do. If we don't have enough time to do what God's called us to do, we got a problem somewhere. Now, I'm not saying if we don't have enough time to be in church every time the doors are open because somebody's harping on us. I'm not saying if we don't have enough time to do what my spouse wants me to do for God. If we don't have enough time to do whatever some spiritual leader's telling me I'm supposed to do. I'm not saying God doesn't speak through those things. What I'm saying is if we don't have enough time, what God is leading us to do. And God will lead us to do something for his kingdom. That's why he leaves us here. But if we don't have time for that, we got a problem. But if we believe that we don't have to worry about it because we can't really make a difference, then we're believing the enemy's lies. Because if God has called us to do certain things, he's going to use us. We may not see the results that we'd like to see. But if God's called us to do it, he's going to use it. He's not going to call us to worthless activity. It's going to make a difference, kingdom 
kingdom-wise, okay? So we need to humbly minister to others. First bullet point in ministry settings. Second one in personal relationships. Totally outside of being a teacher or a preacher or I do this, I do that or whatever. Just in our personal relationships, as we go through life, look for opportunities to serve others and thereby show the love of Christ. You know, what Jesus did here was not some super-duper ministry thing. Washing people's feet was had no spiritual significance in their culture. It just needed to be done. And in the same way, God may call us or lead us or we may choose to do things that don't specifically have some spiritual meaning to it, but by doing it, we're ministering to another person. Okay? And when I talk about personal relationships, I don't mean just do it for people you're close to. But for people God leads you to, God may have you do something, humble yourself and do something in a very practical way for a total stranger because he wants to use that to reach them through you. You know, simple things like greeting people warmly, greeting strangers when people visit the church. But I'm an introvert. I'm okay, that's what we're talking about. You're doing something you're not normally would do, you're not really comfortable doing. You know, I like that excuse. It says, I'm not really comfortable with that. And my thought is, I wonder how comfortable Jesus was going to the cross. You know? Um, we need to get out of our comfort zones. You know, greeting people warmly, developing relationships, praying for people, um, encouraging one another, practical things. You know? Um, so anyway... We live in a selfish and self-centered world, and sometimes that can creep into our own lives as Christians. We need to make sure that we don't fall into that trap. It's one of the reasons why one of Jesus' teachings was, to, you know, if you want to follow, you need to deny yourself. Okay, That doesn't mean you can't ever do anything you want to do. You can't ever do anything that makes you happy. You can't ever please yourself. No, but your focus is not yourself. Your focus is not yourself. Okay? Um, anyway. Um, what's really cool, I put this on your note sheet, you can read it later, but Matthew 25, verses 31 to 46, is one of Jesus' stories. Uh, the sheep and the goats. And the whole point of the story is that when you do things to or for other people, you're actually doing it to and for Jesus. Whereas he takes it as credit. You know, you treat people badly, you're treating Jesus badly. You treat people well, you can be total strangers, and you decide to bless them, you try to help them, you're doing it for Jesus. Letter B, here's the lesson most people do not draw from this story, and God just really laid it on my heart. We should humbly let others minister to us. Sometimes it's harder to let other people minister to us than it is to minister to other people. Why is that? Pride. Which is what, you know, all of us battle with, right? Well, yeah, I can help somebody else. In fact, I feel kind of good helping someone. I'm in a position where I can help other people. But pride doesn't want me to admit that I may need help. I, I can't, when I was, when I was studying this, I just brought this thing to my mind. Why is it that people have a hard time letting other people ministering to them? And it's because we have to take our shoes off. To fit with the same picture, right? If we are going to allow other, and can, for those of you that have been part of a foot washing, foot washing, um, service or ceremony or whatever, it is humbling to get down and wash somebody else's feet. But can I tell you, for me anyway, it's harder to let somebody else wash my feet. Okay? And it's not 
because of pride, but it's because I'm afraid they're going to stink. Or somebody's going to see that my toes, my toes are short and stubby, and they are, by the way. Um, don't ask to look at them, but I'm just saying they are, all right? You know, they're going to think I have weird-shaped feet. You know, it's, it's just self-consciousness. But that's such a great picture of why we struggle to let people minister to us, okay? Um, and I'm not talking about just listening to preaching and teaching. That's easy. You're just taking in. There's no vulnerability. There's no, um, you know, opening ourselves up. But, I mean, a great example is somebody says, how are you? Oh, I'm fine. And you're really not. Now, I don't mean that you have to tell the gut honest truth to every person that you communicate with. But if you're constantly hiding yourself and you're not opening yourself up to anybody, you're not taking advantage of an opportunity that God wants to use someone else to help you just like he wants to use you to help somebody else. Um, You know, some people carry great burdens and they never share or they share very little and they continue to carry those burdens. Why else do we not do that? We feel like we don't need it, pride, we don't deserve it. We're afraid of being seen as a complainer, afraid of showing weakness or need. Sometimes it's because we're not sure we can trust them, and and that's very real. I'm not saying you should open up and share your deepest thoughts and feelings and sins with just anybody. You know, when it talks about us sharing our sins, our faults, our, our temptations with other people, you need to do that wisely. You need to develop relationships with people usually with the same sex, um, husband and wife is good, but people you know you can trust, okay? Because there are people you can't trust to keep it a secret, to keep it to themselves, and there are people you can't trust to not attack you when they find out what you really like, okay? So you've got to do that with wisdom. But we can't, out of that fear, just bottle ourselves up and not have any relationships in which we can really share and not only minister to other people, but allow them to minister to us. Were you want to say something, Tim? Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, just the simple things of helping someone, picking up their medication, taking them shopping. They can't drive for themselves. Um, I've heard of churches that started ministry, men's groups started the ministry of changing oil for single mothers. You know, so they don't have to go spend an arm and a leg to have it done. That's ministry. You know, that is ministry too. we got to wrap this up. It's time to do so. But the last thing. That Jesus said in the passage we read anyway, verse 17, if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. So we can say, oh, we had a great Bible study tonight. I learned some new things, had some other things reinforced. But if we don't go out and do it, doesn't mean anything. But Jesus says you can be specially blessed if you put this to practice. Now, I know most of you in this room. I know you are putting it to practice. But may God help all of us to put it into practice better. It's not enough just to know the truth. And this is true of all truth, not just this truth. It's not enough to know the truth. Not enough to acknowledge that it is true. We have to obey it and put it into practice. So let Jesus work in your life through other people. Make sure you're saved. Make sure you're dealing with the sin in your life. Talking about that part of it. Make sure you're involved in touching other people's lives and let other people touch your life too. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the time that we've had in your word tonight and what we've learned from Peter's response to Jesus. And God, I just pray that you'd help us to do all these things. God, we thank you for salvation, that we can know that we are saved because we're trusting in you. We are on our way to heaven. Thank you, Lord, that your forgiveness is always offered whenever we come to you in repentance. Help us to live a life that's pleasing to you. But Lord, when we do do something, say something, think something, have a nasty attitude, I pray that your spirit would convict us not to condemn us because you don't want to condemn us, but so that we will deal with it right away, make sure we're in right relationship with you. 
And God, use us in other people's lives and help us to be willing to open ourselves up so that you can use other people in our lives too. Help us to be a good body, a good family together. And as we do that to the people around us, may it be a great testimony to them and point them to you. Show us every day ways in which we can serve others to show your love. We give you the glory and the honor in Jesus' name. Amen. We hope you've enjoyed listening to today's message or Bible study. For more information, please contact us at area code 352-347-3001 or visit us online. If you are interested in supporting this ministry, go to our website and click on the online giving tab. Our website address is www.marionoaksag.org.